Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Now, uh, Australians are in the middle of a debate on defence issues at, at very different levels, um, all different levels actually, including underwater. Uh, a recent announcement of the Australian, American, uh, British uh, deal on submarines has caused an absolute ruckus. And part of that is because of the viewpoint expressed by uh, a former Prime Minister, Paul Keating, uh, the very colourful viewpoint, uh, who's known for colour, who's also expressed the National Press Club that was broadcast across the uh, across the world, not just within Australia. It's re he's received plaudits from some people, he's received brickbats from others. But what is significant about it is it... it is it is a an example of political communication that uh, needs to needs to be talked about in a particular particular light. How does this impact on an audience? What is a what is a result of political communication like the the political communication getting engaged in? And then, of course, where do you where do you take it from there? Now, joining me is Professor Tom Clark. He's a professor um, for teaching politics at Victoria University. And we're going to chat about this and sort of tease out some of the issues. Tom, thank you for joining me for this particular episode. Yeah, yeah Tom, uh, great name. Um, so uh, teaching, researching political communication, rhetoric and poetry uh, are where I come from. And there was a time when I was doing a PhD on poetry in English, and I was also working as a speechwriter for a for a premier and uh my career has kind of joined those two up ever since where i'm where i'm looking for the ways that political language moves us or or moves the society around us and and how people respond to that okay so you, 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 what paul getting did last week you did right in your bailey week in terms of, of language and its impacts now uh, well <laughs> What are the significant things that you noticed when you observed the presentation Keating gave? I was really struck by the interpersonal dynamic first, actually. So, so I, I, I wasn't watching the, the address live. I came back to it after people started talking about it, and I thought, oh, well, that's, that's something to catch up with here. Um, so knowing that there was a bit of a Barney, I was, I was struck by how how constructively the relationship between Keating and Laura Tingle opened and and how constructively they kept on talking all the way through even as uh, even as Tingle got got more critical in her um in 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 her um her comments and observations as it went along the respect between them stayed really noticeable and then and then that they were together in Sydney, and there was a video link to to the other question in the National Press Club in Canberra, and that relationship, Keating and journalist one, Keating and journalist two, Keating and journalist three, you know, cabs off the rank, deteriorated as the session went on. And so some people later on um, were asking questions that I thought were were far more reasonable than, than Keating gave them credit for. Um, but, he, but but it was it was like he, he needed tingle to keep to keep on pointing out the 
good faith that was on their side of the story as well. And then, of course, they duly repaid him for his for his classic sobriquet and brickbats by making the story all about how confrontational he, his approach is, when in fact he was running a line of critique, uh, a line of critique that is incredibly important because he's critiquing Australia's defence disposition, right? He, he, the, the, the Australian government is lining up who is going to shoot whom if the chips go down and under what circumstances. And there's nothing more important for, for people with knowledge and understanding to critique and to weigh up. So I, th I thought it was an incredibly, an incredibly important intervention by Keating into national debate. And at the same time, um, his inability to recognize good faith when he saw it was more than matched by journalists' inability or unwillingness to recognize the constructiveness of his input. Let's expand upon that last point um, because I think that's that, that's fertile territory for for examination, um, and that is, you know, substance can be lost in form. Um, yeah. By that I mean, if you cloak your address or your writing in invective no matter how much invective there is, you have you run the risk of the central point being lost, don't you? Yeah. So I, 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 I'll try not to be too theoretical for too long, but one of the one, one of the core propositions of all of all study of meaning is that meaning is content, the form and the function. It's what it's said, it's how it's said, and it's why it's said. And we're forever we're forever reaching for little bits of evidence about what someone's saying, how they're saying it, why they're saying it. And you and I might hear different bits or see different bits. And so we, we come to different interpretations of what Paul Keating said or, or what Phil Curry asked him or, you know, or what Laura Tingle uh, corrected near the end of the program, uh, the, the, the session. But so there is, there, there is always, there is always this balancing going on between what is said, how it's said, and 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 what is driving up, why it's being said, and uh, and, and I think that that wrestle plays out really clearly, as you say, in in the the question of invective versus serious comment, or or or, or, or the question of confrontational adversarial uh, discussion versus um, collegial collaborative discussion. Um, so much of our so much of our system of governance is premised on on adversarial setups and we think adversarial is a bad word but but you know like a, a prosecution and a defense is is guarantee of justice in some quarters a, a government and an opposition is a, is a guarantee of of serious governance in parliament um, so so that we, we've kind of set ourselves up to misunderstand each other in lots of ways and yet that's yeah and that that, that isn't necessarily the way we, we resolve public discussion. But if we go back, and, and I refer to a piece I've written for Crikey here, but if we go back far enough uh, into to the roots of Western philosophy with John Stuart Mill and Thomas Paine and, and others, what we see is people grappling with the nature of opinion, nature of expression, and also the need to listen to and respect another's opinion, however wrong we may believe they can be. 
I mean, indeed, yeah. And if you look at even with even with the correction that uh, transpired at the end of that particular session, uh, Keating was corrected on his on what on the assumption of what actually happened with Penny Wong. Yeah, 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 yeah. Doing yep. it right. Um, that looked sloppy, and then fair enough. You know, if you're going to go in hard and lead with your chin, you you've also got to expect that you get a blow back. Yeah. But the uh, even John Stuart Mill says even if someone is wrong, even if an opinion is is erroneous, there may be some grain of truth within it. And unless you allow for that to be expressed and evaluated against what might be a popular um, opinion or a consensus view, you you don't know what you're missing in the in the single view or the orthodoxy that's in place. Yeah, Mill has such a Mill has such a friendly, collaborative tone about his writing. It's easy to overlook how his is a theory of adversarial justice. Yeah, yeah it, prosecu it, it, pro prosecution defence is an enlightenment approach to ensuring that both sides of the story get told, and and we we now believe there are more than two sides of a story in many in many ways, but still there's a guarantee in that. Uh, Mill uh, Mill is kind of arguing that the test of good government or good governance is disagreeing well, and I I I, I think I, I I think Tingle actually has a really good grasp of that, and that that's why both the journalists at one end and Keating at the other end kind of trust her as a vehicle for their for their often fractious conversation. It's an interesting it's an interesting point we're we're getting into there because when you look at what unfolded on Wednesday uh, last week, when you look at the presentation that people by the way can look up and watch on on YouTube just having and, and I view. And I view yep. the ABC. Yep. Um the uh, that uh, it is worthwhile having a look at it if you're fascinated about the way in which the media and and a former prime minister interacted and what transpired because some of the pyrotechnics will no doubt amuse you but some of it will be annoying in fact there is one i will raise which will which you will remember um and that was fascinating and i've, I've criticized getting on this on Twitter, uh, and, and didn't appear in my piece today. My piece today deals with uh, other issues related to public debate and, and, and John Stuart Mill's philosophy and whatever have you. But um, there was a question asked about getting, of getting, um, and I paraphrase, whether he actually knew enough to be able, to be certain that his judgment on the threat assessment of China was sufficient or contemporaneous enough. You know, did Olivier Kaisley went down that road from Sky News and he talked about the fact that he had a brain and he could read. <laughs> How did you find that encounter in terms of uh, that exchange? Because the question to me was entirely reasonable. Yes, I think the question is entirely reasonable, and he could have given an answer to it that would have entirely vindicated his position. But he, he, um, I'm speculating here. I think he was just getting grumpy, and so he decided <laughs> that he was he, he was he was sick of of, of questioning of questioning of his authority. Um, uh, so I'm not very sympathetic to his answer, but but 
they're, they're in, um, in the discussion of, of threat, uh, people kind of willfully gliding over the difference between risk and threat. Yeah, so a, 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 a threat in the sense of somebody threatening or a party threatening is quite different from the, uh, the material risk that is posed simply by a party, but by, by China's capability. Or, by, or, or for that matter, by America's capability. You know, if if if, if the next time that's January the sixth that pans out the other way, um, and America becomes a radically unreliable ally, then possibly America's capability is a real problem for us. Yeah. So so so, um, I, I would love to see a stronger distinction between risk and threat in the discussion here, because we can we can, we can then... quickly make it about more than China. And I think Keating's answer. There could have been, you know, I'm I, I, I'm 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 questioning the government's risk assessment. Yeah, and well, if he if he if he makes you, it always about threat, even... if he makes it always about the threat, then then he then, then he misses Richard Miles and others saying no, it's about risk. And they, I mean, they're not spelling out the distinction clearly enough either. Then maybe they think it's too fine grained, but but it's it's really important. It's actually not too fine grained. I think if you take the position. Um, that uh, the government is about risk management and risk assessment. Um, you need to explain to people in some form what the risk what risk assessment actually is, mm. um, and how. Keating used to be really good at that kind of explaining. He probably still is, right? He could he, he could give it a crack. But your problem with your problem with that format, which was a dialogue with um, Laura Tingle rather than a speech presented, that gave him the opportunity to deliver his thoughts as he had written them um, and distributed them to the press gallery beforehand. Nine pages, as somebody on Twitter said to me, you know, nine pages. Well, that's all very well and good, but if the audience hasn't observed him delivering the nine pages, they don't, they, they have no context to what he wrote. Yes, you could see um, him chafing with that, couldn't you? Because he was he was trying to quote his own transcript, which was a bit awkward. Yeah, but if, if it was delivered in more of a traditional presentation, then the, then the audience watching would have been given the complete context of his thoughts. And the questions would have then flowed on from that. But it's kind of a game when the only people that have actually seen the documents are people in the press gallery in attendance and you haven't seen the, the written word. All you're seeing is people engaging with each other about something that you loosely work out with about AUKUS as it goes and proceeds, but you don't get to see the actual document, the primary document on which it's based, unless, of course, you follow the right journalists on Twitter who ended up screenshotting everything uh, for the convenience of the people who could actually read that tiny print from their screenshot, which I had cut. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, it sort of, it's the conspiracy of the exclusive <laughs> exclusivity of that environment as well that, that that may have cut some people out of understanding it better. Yeah. Um, what other things did you notice uh, in the discourse with Keating that, that, that interested you? Um, so I, I, know, I know he was the only, I think, 
if I remember this rightly, he was the only person to mention Taiwan or Hong Kong. And yet they are two of the obvious weak points in his line of criticism. Yes, uh, journalists weren't asking about it, and, and more, latterly, you know, uh, insiders talked a bit about Taiwan and Hong Kong, but um, uh, on, on the Sunday morning. But it re really, uh, Keating's argument about th about threat being a manifest intention to take on is quite tested, I think, by the Taiwan scenario. If there if there's some kind of confrontation around Taiwan, then Australia is potentially collateral in that whether we want it or not, whether we have those submarines or not. And so, um, and, and, and to, to strength to his argument, it probably happens before the submarines arrive anyway, right? So, so the, oh, it, mama, it, mama, that's a curious thing. That was... he, he, anyway, he raised it, which I think is a, you know, is a volatile ground for his, for his critique. He raised it and nobody else questioned him about it. And I thought, <laughs> oh, that's, you know, like, is there a lack of circumspection among the people listening to him, whether or, or is it just kind of freak of an hour, and nobody thought of that point in that time. But I can't believe it. They're they're they're, they're clever people on the case. They think about this stuff more and better than I do. And and I, it, was just, it was just weird that it never came back. Um, and I think you'll find that if you looked at Sky News and, and other uh, and certain commentators on there, Stephen Conroy, the former minister uh, of the in the Rudd Gillard government. Um, yeah. from, so I don't think he served Rudd in the second when when Rudd managed his second coming. Um, but uh, Conroy basically read out a list of things that that, that Keating hadn't addressed. Um, from you know the Uyghur, properly addressing the Uyghur issue, properly properly addressing in more substance the the issues to do with Hong Kong and China's yeah. recalcitrance in Hong Kong, all of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he's it, it, it. Tinkle did ask him about the Uyghurs, right? Yeah, it, it did, but it wasn't. You know, Keating went on to, to talk a bit more about that being can sort of can contested at one point during his presentation. But it, it, but the point being, um, you know, his, at one point he referred to Aboriginal uh, debts in custody and, and incarceration of, of Indigenous populations. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a, he adopted the argument, if I can be biblical for a moment, of, you know, to, yeah, trying to remove... Um, the uh, the splinter from you uh, yeah somebody else's eye when you've got a log yeah, in your own yeah 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 um but uh, it wasn't necessarily welcomed by some commentators but they didn't see it as an equivalent criticism no uh, it's it, it's it's a very inconvenient thing that we have to reflect on our own performance when we're when we're busily appraising everybody else's but he's onto something well the question yeah yeah but that's always the case um even on the day we're recording this particular conversation there's been an arrest in relation to the um issues being investigated related to alleged war crimes in afghanistan um, anyone that's got a bit of a memory would know that you know China's foreign affairs wolf warriors had picked up and run with the uh, the tweets on on the Brereton report released uh, released a few years back now. 
So you uh, talking about somebody else's human rights record does inevitably bring the focus on our own or instances of alleged breaches of human rights and conduct in war. Mm. Um, that is inconvenient. You're right, but you've got to work out how you how you contest an argument on that basis internationally. And I mean, I, I think I, I think the, the the really kind of glaring um, form or function um, take on Keating's uh, National Press Club address, but also his 7:30 report report and the speech he gave, his 7:30 report interview, um, uh, is. That of course he's a former prime minister. He's also from the Labour Party, but he's a, for, he's a former prime minister um, engaging in, in 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 public criticism of of, of a, 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 a a strategic policy decision that has been locked in. Uh, so Gillard hasn't gone there. Howard hasn't gone there. Uh, Rudd ha hasn't gone there because he's now got a job that that means he really can't. But but um, but but Keating and Turnbull and Abbott. So fit to, uh, and that's the, the, you know that the, the, the convention that that past prime ministers give, give space to current prime ministers to carve out strategic policy for themselves was probably an important convention. And if we don't if we don't have that anymore, it's going to become a different kind of policy debate for Australia for, for a long time. Okay, now you've raised an interesting question. Former prime ministers have a prominent voice because they've been everywhere. <laughs> they've been seen, they've run things, etc. Um, uh, if a conversation is, needs to be had and we exclude former prime ministers who are uh, public figures from it, where does that, where does um, a counter-argument on policy positions on, on defence or other issues come from? It's a very good question, isn't it? There's a, there's a, there, are real, there are real limitations around the, um, around the, the convention of respect. Uh, I note that every... There seems to be pretty clear agreement that every time Keating tries to ring Albanese, he gets through. That seems to be the consensus from both ends. I imagine that Turnbull and Abbott, if they tried to ring Albanese, they'd probably get through at least the first time they tried. So, 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 so these these people do have lines into policy that that I wouldn't have, and I don't know about you, but but you, but plenty plenty of people wouldn't have. Um, they do have networks, you know. If, if Keating wants an argument run, he's got plenty of people who are current in the game who can who can run with lines of argument if he persuades them. But the, the convention has been about 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 taking up the megaphone yourself as an ex prime minister, and and I completely accept your your your, your, your the legitimacy of your question, right? That, that if if we say no ex prime minister shouldn't have a megaphone or shouldn't have it in these policy areas, then we are we are possibly limiting ourselves. But if we if we give them if we give them the megaphone on these policy issues from now on, that's different to what we've been assuming till now. There's another problem that we ought to ought to raise, um, and that is if we permit the discourse 
Um, you know, these issues in the way it has occurred in this space more frequently, uh, then there is there's a benefit in terms of an argument being raised and things being things being tested in the marketplace of ideas. But there's another problem, and that is adversaries have a propaganda advantage. Mm -hmm. And that is, they say, quite, 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 they'd be quite happy, easily led into a, a conversation where they say, hold on, a former prime minister today said that the Australian government's policy on a particular, you know, deal and engaging with America and the United Kingdom is absolutely wrong. So you've got you've got the double-edged sword, which is in the domestic environment, it may help uh, test ideas, may help firm people up, but it creates a proper, but it can do harm. There's a negative somewhere in there where the possible adversary um, in any in any conflict or through economic coercion or whatever it happens to be, which you know, they tell us China is letting us go a bit. <laughs> um, they're, they're letting yeah. it go. But the, how do you ride that wave? Yeah. It's, it's really the question. It, it's a complex issue. Do you... Do you, do you Somebody of the significance of a former prime minister saying, "How dare you go down this road? It's it's wrecked the track record of the Labor Party for a century." Um, gives some people uh, an insight into possible arguments, but adversaries are able to use it to talk the country down. So uh, to, uh, there's a really interesting main point in your question. There's also an, an interesting side point about the track record of the Labor Party. It'd be good to take up that one in a sec as well. Um, I think on the main point, the importance of that becomes really apparent in an age where social media narrow casting is coupled with analytics. And so people engaging in, 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 in the discourse game in bad faith are able to confuse and, 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 and thwart Good public discourse, rather than enhance and 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 you know and, and broaden it or deepen it, um, and we've certainly seen that in in uh, foreign interventions into election processes, including in this country, but but much more spectacularly in in some uh, some countries overseas. So we really do have to watch out for it, and I think I think ultimately the only adequate defence against that is is a better educated electorate, which is a very John Stuart Mill argument. Actually, a better educated electorate is is, is the best yeah. is the best guarantee of people. Distinguishing between good faith and bad faith arguments. Yeah. And now, I, how do we do? How do we do that? You're in the education. Oh, everyone should everyone should enroll in my courses. No. Um, 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 no. Well, aside from Victoria University getting yeah. a free promotion. Yeah, yeah. We've Sorry. there's an issue. <laughs> there's an issue of principle here. Yeah. Um, and that is, how do we do it? Because I, using my, in me as myself with the case study. Um, I went to a secondary, a private secondary college. Um, the major grounding in philosophy was in you know, our religious education periods and 
whatever it was that was chosen for us in terms of yeah, topics for politics um, in English and in literature. In English, we were blessed um, at the time, at least in my view, uh, because somebody in their wisdom decided to select the topic uh, power and politics. So we ended up reading uh, The Prince by Nicola, Nicola Machiavelli, Orwell's 1984, Robert Bolt's The Man for All Seasons, and we also got uh, to explore a, a book that's an anthology of Nelson Mandela's speeches called No Easy Walk to Freedom. Uh, Great reading list. Yeah, that reading list um, remains a foundation for some of my thinking. Uh, but we, you know, we didn't get On Liberty <laughs> by John Stuart Mill. We didn't get Thomas Paine's Age of Reason. And in fact, you know, going to a, a Catholic college, one would want <laughs> Age of Reason would not appear on the reading list, given what it says about organised religion. Um, which basically uh, Thomas Paine said that organised religion sucks. If you want the thesis, <laughs> if you want the thesis, but um, what are the things that you know as an educator that help critical thinking, um, uh, and that that could sit within a curriculum? So I think. You're never going to get everyone to read everything. You're never going to get everyone to read everything that's good. So, so you need to focus on on using the resources that are available, a, a reasonable a, a reasonable sample of the, the resources that are available to build the skills. What skills are we talking about? I think it goes back to that idea of of skills for disagreeing well. So, so teaching people to see different sides of the story, teaching people to argue their side of the story respectfully and learn from each other, um, uh, in, encouraging encouraging skills of of curio curiosity and research and weighing up evidence and attempting to be proportionate in handling each other's arguments. The more practice people get at arguing well and disagreeing well, the better able they are and the more confident they are. To set to set the rubbish aside, and that's that's my constant experience of teaching at university level. But it's, it was also my memory of, of learning at a high school level. Yeah, I think you you have to focus on the skills of disagreeing well. You, every, every in a democracy, everybody governs everybody, and so we're 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 inculcating generations of governors as well as generations of the governed. Yeah. Um. How do you navigate that as an educator in a, in, a, in an environment where your students are uh, you know, subject to you know, social media? You know, how does that how does that um, add some twists and turns to to what you do in the in the classroom environment? Well, we teach using social media among among other resources. If I'm if if I'm trying to teach examples of good faith negotiation and 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 bad faith propagandizing, uh, I can I can use 
I can use social media as examples of both. I wouldn't ever use only social media. I would I would use broadcast media, and I would use historical documents and and uh, and and correspondence. But 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 it's really important that people can see social media as one of the landscapes where these questions matter. Well, uh, you've been extremely generous with your time. I've been talking to Professor Tom Clark from Victoria University about some of the implications of the way in which we, as a community, have engaged in debate on the AUKUS uh, submarine deal, uh, particularly sparked after Paul Keating had a had a former prime minister had a crack at the current government and the former government on on national security issues. Tom. It, if people want to know more about the type of things you teach and what you're involved in, uh, where do they go? You can you can, you can go into reading about political rhetoric, and you can also go into reading about literature and poetry, and and the the, the two fields really do converge. They they are both trading in meaning training in stories. Uh, when I was working as a speechwriter, I realized that I didn't, you know, un unlike say the poets I was studying, I didn't have maybe a line count, 14 lines for a sonnet. I didn't have maybe a rhyme scheme, A, B, A, B or whatever, I, <laughs> but I had, but I had a number of minutes. I had uh, a number of topics that had to be said and a number of topics that couldn't be said. Uh, I had uh, a story that needed to work its way through those rules which was inherently like the challenge of poetry. And so whether you, whether you come at it from, from, from a kind of a literary purist approach to meaning, or whether you come at it from a political applied approach to meaning, actually they converge on the same fundamental questions. What, what are people saying? How are they saying it? Why are they saying it? If you want to know more about uh, uh, the work of Professor Tom Clark, you might also jump on the VU website. He's got a biography over there. You can check out his background and the work he does at Victoria University. Tom, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Likewise, Tom. A, re a real pleasure to discuss. Thank you. Hope we can do it again sometime. <laughs>